You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. First off, I want to thank everybody for sticking around all the way to week three. I really appreciate it. And for those of you who have been trying to help me by spreading the word about this podcast, I really appreciate it, even though my voice might not always reflect it because I am naturally quite monotone. If you're new to the podcast, you might want to go back and listen to the first two episodes A Brief History of Films Part 1 and 2. This episode is very much supplemental to those, but hey, do your own thing, live your own life. The last two weeks we went over a fairly Western, primarily American, look at film, but there were a cavalcade of other countries and movements that shaped the modern film industry. Hollywood has pretty much dominated much of the global market in terms of popularity for the last 70 years or so of cinema particularly after World War I, but it was also deeply influenced by the films and film movements that came from other countries. So, this week, I wanted to fill in some brief histories on some other international film markets and movements that I didn't get into with the first two episodes. This, like the last two weeks, will also be a pretty quick run-through and will not include every film movement or even a country's full history. The world is a very big place, and most countries have some kind of film industry. So if I didn't mention something in these first few weeks, don't fret, eventually we'll get to it. As always, the sources I used are in the episode notes if you'd like to go into anything further that I cover today, as well as some recommended viewing. I apologize for the pronunciations in advance. I swear I did my best. With that, Let's take our places. It's showtime. Tous les gens qui vivent ensemble s'aimaient. La terre brillerait comme un soleil. Baptiste. Il fallait tuer, j'espère. Aussi, il fallait tuer tous les imbéciles. Évidemment. Et pourtant, ça simplifierait tellement les choses. Let's start with a little bit of French film history. You've already heard about the Lumières and Georges Méliès in the first episode, so here's some stuff that happened after. As film became industrialized in the early 1900s, seismic shifts occurred in France's budding film industry. The Pathé Ferré company acquired the Lumières camera patents and immediately set to work to improve upon the design whilst developing their own film stock. They streamlined the filmmaking process and quickly began dominating the entire worldwide film market. Many of their films would go on to influence performers like Charlie Chaplin and the immensely popular Keystone Cops. 
Nearly 60% of films during this time, worldwide, were shot using a Pathé camera. Meanwhile, Pathé's rival, Gaumont Pictures, while never quite achieving the success of Pathé, had their own first with the hiring of Alice Guy, the first female director. These companies dominated the pre-World War I film market and effectively killed the work of their more whimsical and independent contemporaries like George Millier. The first major international film movements came out of the wreckage of World War I, especially in countries like France and Germany, the latter of which we'll get to in a second. By the 1930s, France began putting out films in a style that came to be known as poetic realism. Like the Hollywood films of the era, most of these films were shot on the backlots of the studios instead of using practical locations, giving the films a more polished outlook on life. Characterized by down-on-their-luck characters grappling with the atrocities life has thrown at them, who are given one more chance at happiness, but are ultimately let down once more. The most well-known example of poetic realism is probably 1937's La Grande Illusion, Jean Renoir's masterpiece of two POW pilots and the class warfare between the prisoners and the guards. The film argued that war between European nations was pointless due to the common economic interests of Europe and is noted for being one of the few films ever made that showed a sympathetic view of all nationalities portrayed in the film. This movement would go on to inspire the French New Wave, which was started by those scrappy kids at the Calle du Cinema, as well as Italian neorealism. Like the films that would be released in France in the 1960s, French Impressionist film came out of the desire to make cinema more, well, French. Also sometimes referred to as avant-garde cinema, this movement reached into the darker depths of the French reality. Inspired by painters of the time, in that directors focused more on the aesthetics of the moving picture than their American counterparts, and used more nonlinear editing, meaning the story is presented out of order, and rampant point-of-view shots. The most popular film of this time, Napoleon, introduced the wide-angle camera. This movement is argued by many film historians as the movement that would start film theory. French New Wave, probably the most influential film movement, began around 1958. Briefly mentioned last week, the movement was started by a group of film critics for the Cahiers du Cinema who had a wide knowledge of films and grew frustrated of the monotonous film industry and France's keenness to imitate the incredibly popular films of Hollywood's golden age. Keen on innovation, the Calle boys got to work and started making their own films. Inspired by the manifesto of Alexandre Astic, the birth of a new avant-garde, the camera stylo, which argued that cinema as an art form could rival literature or paintings as a legitimate art form. Astic believed that each director should be able to put their own unique signatures on their films, just like a painter or an author. Using portable equipment and requiring little to no setup time, the French New Wave way of filmmaking often presented a more documentary-looking style. Characteristics included fragmented, discontinuous editing, as well as long takes. 
The combination of realism, subjectivity, and authorial commentary created a narrative ambiguity in the sense that questions that arise in a film are not answered in the end. Francois Truffaut's film, The 400 Blows, and Jean-Luc Godard's 1960 film, Breathless, both received unexpected international success and were praised for their innovative filmmaking techniques. These films, and several others, allowed the movement to thrive. Since then, new wave cinema has been a constant inspiration to filmmakers worldwide. In fact, every film movement that has the term new in front of it was heavily influenced by French New Wave. As briefly mentioned last week, the 80s brought on new forms of entertainment for cinema to contend with, like home video and video games. In France, the government supported young filmmakers to boost the industry's output. The resulting movement, known as Cinema du Look, was known for its highly stylized and colorful films. The most recognizable name to come out of this movement, at least to the more casual filmgoer, is Luc Besson, whose films La Femme Nikita and 1994's Leon the Professional had international success. In short, this movement, unlike the prior French cinema movements, did not shy away from commercialism. Pop culture was actually interwoven into these films, and stories were no longer considered the most important aspect. It was the cool factor that audiences wanted from these films. Germany has a very expansive film history, as it was once the largest film market in the world before World War I and World War II. For the sake of this episode, I want to focus on just one of its movements, German Expressionism, the movement that would lead to the modern horror film, something we'll be going into quite a bit of detail in October. Toward the end of World War I, Germany had banned all foreign films, leading to an increase in in-country film production. Since the German people could no longer go to foreign locales for a vacation, they went to the cinema, causing a significant boom in the market and their own distinct film styles. German Expressionism came out of the horrors of World War I and was inspired by Expressionist painters and theater designers of the era. Directors like Fritz Lang and Robert Wein created films that were characterized by jagged, flat-lit sets with the shadows painted onto the sets instead of using lighting tricks. The films were made incredibly cheaply as the recently defeated Germany found its economy in shambles. The movement was essentially the birth of the horror film, film noir, and modern sci-fi. Unfortunately, Due to poor preservation practices, many of the films from this era have been lost to time or are severely damaged. For example, Fritz Lang's 1927 masterpiece Metropolis, though partially preserved, has been painstakingly pieced more or less back together over the last nearly 93 years from old film prints found all over the world in all manners of crazy old basements. This movement thrived for over 10 years 
until the Nazis took control of Germany and forced the film industry to create propaganda pieces for their agendas. Let's talk about some Soviet-Russian contributions to film and film theory. In the mid-1920s in the USSR, a movement of cinema known as Soviet Montage, best known for giving the world, you guessed it, the montage, a film editing technique in which a series of short shots are sequenced to condense space, time, and information. Russian directors as a whole didn't use aesthetically pleasing edits and overall preferred images and editing that conveyed an emotional response from its audiences rather than a logical one. The greatest example of montage is probably Sergei Eisenstein's Battleship Potemkin, most famously the stair sequence, in which characters are brutally murdered by soldiers. Startling images like a baby crying in a bassinet while rolling downstairs, a woman shot in the eye, and the wide image of the result of the soldier's carnage has inspired countless films for the last century. Another innovation to come out of the former USSR was the work of director Lev Kuleshov, who realized that merely seeing an actor react to something did not give the emotional response he wanted from his films. To get to the bottom of this issue, Kuleshov took the neutral face of the same man and juxtaposed several different sequences of images to follow his face. A woman in a casket, a bowl of soup, and a beautiful woman lying on a couch. The audience he showed them to, despite all starting with the same man making the same face, caused different reactions in the audience dependent on the second image. In the case of Kuleshov's original images, sadness, hunger, and lust. This became known as the Kuleshov effect and is studied by young filmmakers to this day. Marcello, devi andare a Don Pietro, sbrigate! And now, a little ditty about Italian neorealism. Italy had been instrumental in popularizing longer films in the pre-World War I era. With lavish sets and costumes, coupled with spectacular scene. This era of Italian cinema would go on to inspire many elements of Hollywood's golden age. Due to the atrocities of World War II and the rejection of the post-war happy-go-lucky Hollywood films, Italian filmmakers shifted from the big fantastical sets and design of their past to focus more on the struggles of the common man in a movement known as Italian neorealism. The Allies had bombed Italy's largest studio, Ginegita, to prevent further fascist propaganda from being made at the studio before Italy changed sides, forcing Italian filmmakers to take their art to the streets. The films that came out of this movement widely featured untrained actors, 
natural lighting, and focused on the struggles of the lower classes. Italian neorealism was first used to describe Lucino Visconti's 1943 film Obsessione, which was based on the book The Postman Always Rings Twice. As Italy's censorship was lifted after Mussolini was removed from power, the neorealist films were allowed to prosper, culminating in Roberto Mussolini winning the Palme d'Or at the 1946 Cannes Film Festival for Rome, Open City. This movement is praised for its portrayals of the working-class man and is widely considered to be Italy's golden age of filmmaking. Several of the filmmakers from this era would go on to do co-productions with the French New Wave filmmakers, whom they had inspired. Stateside, Martin Scorsese had been majorly influenced by Italian neorealism within his filmmaking, eventually going so far as to make a documentary on it, 1999's My Voyage to Italy. And now, a little bit more about Japanese cinema that we didn't get to last week. Through its Ministry of Propaganda, Japan placed very strict rules on pre-World War II cinema. The Japanese films at the time were expected to praise the imperial government and reflect the values put in place by their world order, whilst touting their militaristic gravitas. During World War II, specifically after Pearl Harbor, the Japanese military seized control of the 10 largest production companies in Japan, consolidating them into two, and began pumping out war propaganda for their cause. Filmmakers, who were in short supply of actual wartime footage that the government wanted to add into the pictures, became remarkably skilled at creating special effects and makeup in order to recreate battle scenes, a skill set that would come in handy not long after the war ended. While many of you may have never seen a 1950s or 1960s Japanese film, and if you haven't, you really should, because Japanese cinema particularly the films of the post-war years, have been incredibly influential on the international film scene. Akira Kurosawa, probably the most iconic Japanese filmmaker, has had his films copied more times than you can count. For example, his film Seven Samurai has been remade twice in Hollywood alone. His 1958 film The Hidden Fortress, the story of two peasants, who agreed to escort a man and a woman across enemy lines in return for gold without knowing that the man is a general and the woman is a princess. Sound familiar? Well, The Hidden Fortress was the film that inspired George Lucas to write Star Wars. The kaiju films, Think Godzilla, which served as a metaphor for the destruction of Japan after World War II, would boost the toy industry and inspire sci-fi films for the coming decades. While the success of these films was international, there were those within the industry that wanted the opportunity to make more personal films. At its height in the 1970s, Japanese New Wave was characterized by taboo topics and experimental storytelling styles with jazz music as their scores. 
Films coming out of the studios at this time like to push the envelope with carnal films that push the envelope with their unfiltered look at society. Unlike the other new wave movements, Japanese new wave actually originated within the nation's studio system at the hands of young, previously unknown directors. Japanese new wave cinema is primarily remembered for its analytical, philosophical approach towards Japan's societal issues. This movement also heavily influenced Quentin Tarantino's visual style. Chinese cinema has been around since about 1905, stabilizing in the early 1910s. The primarily Shanghai-based filmmakers grew technologically more or less in lockstep with their American counterparts. However, when Japan invaded China in 1937, all filmmaking was immediately stopped. After the war ended, Chinese cinema was placed under government control under the Minister of Culture and forced to stick to strict guidelines regarding the content of their films. Chinese cinema would be dealt another blow. In 1967, a cultural revolution occurred, violently uprooting artists, including filmmakers, who were forced into re-education camps. New, young filmmakers, fresh out of school, and the older ones fresh out of re-education camps weren't allowed to begin filmmaking again until 1970. In Hong Kong cinema, kung fu films, which started out as a violent genre, was boosted into an art form by the 1970s. Stars like Jackie Chan and Bruce Lee would take these highly choreographed, sequenced films to popularity in the States. Director Jean Wu would also come out of this genre and have a successful career in both Chinese and Hollywood studios. Today, many Chinese production companies have formed close relationships with the American studios to create films that appeal to an international audience. Despite Hollywood being the loudest film market in the game, it is not the largest. This distinction goes to India. Putting out numbers today, akin to Hollywood during its golden age, India currently puts out about eight to 900 films per year, about a quarter of the modern day global market. India has its own unique challenges when it comes to filmmaking. There are more than 16 languages used within the country alone and, therefore, within their films. If you've heard of the Indian film market, 
it's likely because of Bollywood, responsible for a quarter of India's film output. These films are primarily released in Hindi. The uniting factor of all Indian films, despite the substantial language barriers, is the stylization of musical numbers and mythological romance. India follows very strict formulaic storylines and has a studio system similar to Hollywood's in the 1930s and 40s. For example, stars are groomed and plugged into projects. The most popular genre of Bollywood is the masala film, which was pioneered by filmmaker Nasir Hussain and screenwriters Salim Khan and Hav Akhtar. Masala films mix action, comedy, romance, drama, and melodrama broken up by musical numbers. This is probably the type of film you think of if someone says the term Bollywood. The popularity of this genre has made Bollywood the largest producer of musicals since the decline in their popularity in the West in the 1960s. And finally, a short modern history of Korean cinema. Taking inspiration from Western and Japanese New Wave films, but also Pansori, a Korean type of storytelling, the Korean New Wave features stories that deal very much with their culture as a whole. Films like Old Boy deal with the fears of North Korean isolation, and the 2006 film The Host, directed by Academy Award-winning director Bong Joon-ho, deals with the fear of invasion, two very real threats imposed on them by North Korea. These films are generally quite violent, sometimes gratuitously. While always pretty popular with film buffs, Korean cinema in the last 10 years has begun to receive its much-deserved worldwide attention. Old Boy was remade by Spike Lee in 2013. And of course this year, in 2020, the 2019 film Parasite take home both the Foreign Language Film Oscar and the night's top prize. It's easy, living in the United States, to forget the major contributions the world at large has made to cinema. I'm certainly guilty of this, but international cinema is a whole other world, rife with incredible films, waiting for people to discover and fall in love with. To quote Bong Joon-ho, Once you overcome the one-inch-tall barrier of subtitles, you will be introduced to so many more amazing films. This concludes our episodes on the brief histories of film. There are still a ton of stuff in so many other countries that I didn't get to or even mention in these past few weeks, but I promise I will cover sometime down the line. As always, there will be corresponding images on all social media and some recommended viewing in the show notes. Please keep in mind that the places that I've said you can stream them is in the United States. 
international availability may vary. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media on Twitter at Tinsel underscore Factory, Instagram at Tinsel Factory Pod, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. Did I get something wrong? Email me and let me know, and I'll correct it on a future episode. Next week, we're shifting gears and beginning a deep dive on the Big Five, a historical title given to the largest and most influential film studios of the Golden Age. Next week, we're starting with the oldest, Paramount Pictures. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap. Thank you.